Have you ever felt like God was being silent? Like he didn't hear or at least was not responding to the prayers and the needs in your life? I remember 15 years ago, we were praying about what we were going to do because we had found out that we didn't have uh, much longer to stay in the school, the school where we started, which was Razor Elementary. And we didn't have long to stay. And we found out that we could go to another school in LISD, but it was only going to be for a couple of years. And then we would have to move out if we didn't have property. So we were frantically praying and searching and working and looking for something. And it just seemed like nothing would ever work out. I remember praying over and over. I remember daily looking. And it just seemed that nothing was happening. It sounded like heaven was silent. And that went on for a couple of years. And then one day I remember specifically praying. And most of you know this story. I was driving down this road and we hadn't really looked on this side because we thought it would be too expensive. But we had looked everywhere, north of here, uh, east of here, west of here. And we'd looked at every other direction. And I remember seeing a sign and I said, all right, I'll just call this one too, as I'd done hundreds of times. And I called that sign, called that number on there. And a lady got on the phone and she said, um, may I help you? I said, yes, I'm looking for property. I wanted to see what you had available and what you were, char- what were you asking. She said, how many acres are you looking for? And I said, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight, depending on how much it costs. She said, well, we have 360 acres and we don't want to divide. I said, is there any way I can get you to change your mind? She said, no. I said, well, ma'am, uh, would you be willing to talk to one of your neighbors and ask them if we could visit with them about their property? She said, young man, I just inherited this property. And so, uh, no, I don't know my neighbors. We just want to sell it all at one, as, as one piece. And I said, well, ma'am, I'm a pastor. And I'm going to ask you to take my number. And I'm going to pray that you change your mind. And that's what I'm going to do. And so uh, she said, well, you know what, young man? It just so happens that my husband has driven down from Missouri just for today. He left this morning and he's coming back tomorrow morning. He's only there today. This is the only day that he'll be there probably this year. So why don't you just drive out and see if you see him? So I drove about a mile from here and I found him. Matter of fact, there's a housing project, a housing division being put up now about a mile from here. And I found him out there in the woods, out there in a field. And he had a cowboy hat on and blue jeans and boots. And I was wearing blue jeans and boots that day and driving a pickup as well. And I found him, and I went over to him, and I said, uh, hello, Mr. Bond, my name is Ron Holton. He said, yeah, my wife told me, she warned me you were coming. And I said, uh, I'm a pastor here. I'd love to talk to you about your property. And so we talked and traded stories. I knew of an evangelist that he knew of. We started trading stories. He said, why don't you just come walk with me, young man? So uh, I started walking with him, and we walked about a mile till we got right here somewhere in this neighborhood, right in this area. And he said, God just told me to sell whatever you want. He said, I've had people, I have people call every day and I've told them all no, but God just told me to tell you yes. I said, all right. He said, what do you want? I said, what did God tell you? Sell me. (laughs) And and he said, "Uh, this right here, that's going to be a six lane road right there. This is the piece everybody wants. This is what you want. He goes, how many acres you want? I said, how much are you asking? He said, well, I was asking 72 an acre for the whole thing, but I could get, uh, I could get 150,000 acre for this right here easily. And I said, um, how about 70? And he said, uh, all right, how many you want? I said, we'll take 10. I said, would you pray about giving us six or seven more acres? Maybe it was a tax write-off. He said, uh, I don't know about that. He said, uh, he said, I tell you what, I'll pray about it. <clears throat> call me in the morning. I'll tell you what God says. I said, all right. So I called the next morning. I said, Mr. Bond, what did God say? He, he said to give you seven more acres, boy. And so we got 17 acres. 
at a very low percentage of what it's worth today because God gave it to us that day. We'd been praying for years, been looking for years, but you know what it was? It was the fullness of time. It was the moment, it was the day, it was the time. That was the day, because if I'd come any other day, if I'd call that sign any other day in the last three years, he would not have been there. It was God's providential fullness of time. Now, there's a passage of scripture I want to read, just one verse to you uh, briefly, because I think it is, it's the picture of this message today. It's the picture of what God is doing, and it's in Galatians chapter Four, Galatians chapter 4. You may think that's an odd place to begin a study on the Gospels, but Galatians 4.4, 4, the Bible says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. But when the fullness of time had come, uh, in theology we call this the pleroma, okay? The pleroma, the fullness of time. In other words, God has been working behind the scenes, moving, <clears throat> manipulating pieces, preparing for just the right time for him to reveal himself, for an event to occur. This is the pleroma, and this is exactly what happens with the gospel. So this morning, we're going to look at the past. We're going to look before you get to uh, the gospels. What had transpired? How is it ready? How is the pleroma about to take? How is it about to be the fullness of time? Let me tell you something. God is never late, but he's seldom early. He's always right on time. The Pleroma, all right? Now, let's go back and let's look at history. We're going to look in just a moment at the period of time that happened between Malachi and the Gospels. There's a 400-year period. It's often called the silent period, but it was silent because there was not a prophet that spoke on behalf of God. There was no word that came from God, but there were a lot of things transpiring, a lot of things happening, and I think you'll greater appreciate and greater, have a much greater understanding of the Gospels if you understand what was transforming and what was transpiring uh, before the Gospels began. So let's, uh, let's take just a moment and let's look at that. Uh, let's start way back and let's go all the way to 1400 B.C. In 1400 B.C., and by the way, these are round numbers. I know you can look at Wikipedia and get different dates uh, that are be a couple years off, uh, but to be honest with you, they don't know either. We know there are periods of time because of calendaring uh, problems and calendars we use and calendars they use. We can't give you an exact, some people can, but they don't really know, but we can give you a pretty close estimate of the time these things occurred. So I just say that because uh, every once in a while you said, you know, that really happened in 1398. Really, were you there? But nevertheless, with that understanding, we're going to round up or round down uh, a lot of times here. So 1400 B.C., the Jews enter the promised land. In other words, they have left Egypt. God has delivered them through his prophet Moses. They come into the promised land. They're not really welcome there. Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of things that are going on, a lot of people seeking to destroy them. But they begin to develop themselves and their national identity as the Israelites. They weren't called Jews back then, uh, but they were the Israelites. And so the Israelites began to grow uh, just as a struggling nation, and they began to exist and uh, soon they go through a process of judges where they finally get a king. The first king is Saul. And then uh, the golden age under King David, who comes at about 1,000 B.C. King David, the greatest king uh, of all of the history of, of uh, Jerusalem and Israel. And he becomes the king and makes, in 1,000 A.D., he uh, conquers 
Jerusalem and takes over Jerusalem and makes that Israel's capital city. Takes it from the Jebusites. Uh, And then after that, he has a son named Solomon. Solomon builds uh, a beautiful temple. And Solomon, under Solomon, there's great wealth, but there's also great taxation. And when Solomon dies, uh, there is kind of an uproar. And lo and behold, uh, two sons take the kingdoms. The first kingdom is called Israel. It's the ten tribes. There are 12 tribes in, in, in uh, Israel. The, the ten on the north are called Israel. And then the two that succeed on the south are called Judah and Benjamin. So there's two tribes under Jeroboam and Rehoboam. So there's two tribes now uh, starting at about 930, uh, 920, somewhere in that neighborhood, B.C. So from 920 B.C., uh, all the way to 720 B.C., they operate in this capacity. Uh, they kind of butt heads with each other, but they're still kinfolk, so to speak. <clears throat> but then in 720 uh, B.C., the Assyrian army comes in, and they are the world power at this point, and they conquer most of the known world, uh, at least that would have been known uh, to the Jews and to the, to the Israelites at this point. And they come under Assyrian Domination. This is a very difficult time, very tough time. Uh, they are made slaves and vassals during this time, and so it is uh, an extremely difficult time. But then it goes from bad to worse when the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar come in and they take over. Not only do they take over the countryside and the land and everything, uh, but they also cart off both Judah and Israel. They cart them off into Babylon. Everybody, uh, that every able-bodied male, uh, every child and woman, uh, only those who are on, in the margins, those who, who are uh, weak or frail, uh, were left behind pretty much. And so they're taken away, and so now they've lost, uh, they've lost their national identity, they've lost their culture, and now they're serving basically as slaves for Nebuchadnezzar, for the Babylonian Empire. So they exist there, and that's the story of Daniel. That's how Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get there, Ezra, Nehemiah, all those prophets. They've come in during the time of the Babylonian Empire. Well, we fast forward a little bit and we get to five, approximately 530 BC and Persia becomes the dominant empire at that point under a guy named Cyrus. And Cyrus comes through and he conquers the Babylonian empire. But Cyrus is a different kind of king. Matter of fact, the Bible even prophesies about Cyrus. Uh, Cyrus is a different kind of king. He believes that people will best be served to be in their homeland and in their culture, worshiping their gods, doing their life, and they can simply just pay me taxes and I'll be happy. That'll, that'll make for peace. We won't have all this animosity and resentment, and uh, we'll be able to spread our power throughout, uh, throughout the, the known land. And so that's exactly what he does. He releases them, and he tells the Jews they can go home. And not only that, he helps them financially build, rebuild the temple and then rebuild the walls. That's the story of Nehemiah. We talked about last, last week, um, we talked about uh, Esther, and that was under that was Cyrus's grandson, Xerxes. And so all these things are transpiring. God is using a pagan king. Israel is kind of getting their identity back, their nation back. And so that's what's transpiring. So in relative terms, in relative history, compared to what's been going on, this is pretty good. And during that time of the Persian Empire. If you go uh, over toward uh, Greece, there's something else going on. And Greece and Persia kind of butted heads for a while there, but Persia was, was dominant. But there's some people that are born. And matter of fact, there are at least three individuals, really four, who were born during this time and who live, who have a tremendous impact 
on Western history as we know it today, the Western thought process, how we think and how we, uh, how we go about philosophy, how we go about even science and things of that nature, they had a huge impact. The first great one, great Greece and great philosopher, was named Socrates. Most of you are familiar with Socrates, the Socratic method. Uh, some call him the father of philosophy, uh, the father of rhetoric. Uh, but then there's another. He has a pupil. He has a disciple, and his name is what? Plato. And then Plato, in turn, has a student, has a star pupil, and his name is Aristotle. You're a sharp group. Not everybody knew this in the last one. Okay? So we've got Socrates, then we have Plato, then we have Aristotle. And they have a huge impact on their culture, and it's during this time uh, that the the uh, Greeks under Alexander the Great defeat Persia. Now, Aristotle has a pupil, and his name is Alexander the Great. And what's interesting about uh, Aristotle, Aristotle has a com- just a consuming passion in regards to unity. He believes that if you can get everyone in the world to ascribe to the same philosophy, just the same religion, the same moral values, the same understanding of science... Uh, and matter of fact, he's known, some call him the, the father of science. He believes in unity. If you can unify all this knowledge, all this culture, then the world can be as utopian, so to speak, as it possibly can be. It can be sort of a utopia. Everybody can communicate with one another. Everybody will understand one another. Science can progress. Therefore, mankind can pro- uh, progress. So he's a big believer in unity, and he believes this will best be served through the Greek culture that he's learned from Socrates to Aristotle, or excuse me, Socrates to Plato to Aristotle. And he begins to pour in this philosophy and this mindset to Alexander the Great, his student. And so he teaches him. So when Alexander uh, takes over the throne at a very young age, probably of about 20, he has learned this philosophy, this mindset, that Greek culture is the ultimate culture. And if we can spread this, he calls it Hellenization. If we can Hellenize the rest of the world, we will have a pe- we'll have peace, we'll have prosperity, and his fame will grow great. That's what needs to happen. So he begins the process of Hellenization. And in 331 BC, uh, Alexander the Great at this point starts the process of Hellenization. And Israel is right in the middle of it. They're experiencing that. But after Alexander, as we know, conquers most of the known world, he dies not long after that. So you've got this massive empire, Hellenization, everybody's starting to learn Greek, everything's starting to be written in Greek, Uh, the, the Greek economy is being used, the monetary system, the thought process, the gods are being put everywhere, the philosophy, the education system is all going Greek. And he's going through this Hellenization process, but he dies. Well, then it's divided initially into eight generals take over, but uh, he doesn't have an heir. But it, it finally works its way down to two primary generals and two t- primary groups. And the northern part is called the Seleucids. The northern part of the kingdom is called the Seleucids under the, general, the Seleucid general. And then the, the southern part in Egypt is called the Ptolemies. So you've got the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, and this is the kingdom. They are the rulers, so to, so to speak. Uh, of the, of the Roman rulers of the world at this point. 
Well, uh, we find ourselves, because of the Hellenization uh, in, in, in the Ptolemaic in, empire down in Egypt, Egypt ha- has Alexander, which has the world's largest library. Remember, there was no printing press at that time, so this was a big deal. And Ptolemy decides that he wants there to be a copy of every book in history and culture to be written in Greek and placed in that library. He wants a copy of every book. Remember, books were very difficult to come by at that time, very difficult to write, very expensive. But he takes the, take upon the task to have every book that is known to man to try to be translated into Greek and to have a copy. So guess what gets translated during that time into Greek? The Old Testament, the Torah and the prophets. And we call that the Septuagint. God used pagans to translate that into the language that everyone was learning. Remember, only a few knew Hebrew, very select group, but now everyone's going to learn Greek. You think God is working in the fullness of time? Now everyone is going to know Greek, and the Old Testament is being translated into Greek, somewhere around 250 B.C. Well, then around 197, there's a transfer, and there's actually several transfers during this time, but there's a a major transfer that instead of the Ptolemies being uh, in control of Palestine and the greater Israel and Jerusalem area uh, at that point, then the Seleucids come into control, and they are even more radical in their Hellenization. Matter of fact, Antiochus III is the king at that point. He's the the leader of the Seleucid Empire. And so he comes in and he says, here's the deal. I I want, this isn't happening fast enough or to the degree I want. So particularly with these Jews, we've had problems with them. Here's what I'm going to do. We're going to, I'm going to enact three, uh, three things that are capital and punishments. I'm going to, three issues, three decrees, and it's a capital of punishment to uh, ignore any of these. And so what does he do? Well, the first one is this. It becomes illegal to observe the Sabbath. Illegal to observe the Sabbath. Now, that's a big deal for the Jews. It's a capital offense. The second one, it is illegal, it is a capital offense to circumcise your boy. And there's some awful stories about, that you don't want to hear about what happened to people who did do that. And then the third one was it was illegal to, earn, to, to own any Hebrew scriptures. Illegal. So you can't observe the Sabbath. You can't circumcise your son and you can't own or read or possess any Hebrew scriptures. Those are capital offenses, punishable by death. This is a difficult time, and it's leading into even more difficult time because then his son comes on the scene, and he's Antiochus Epiphanes. You've heard the word Epiphanes. We talk about Epiphany on the church calendar. It means manifestation. So he believes himself, or at least uh, he communicates himself as God manifests. He's God manifest in man. And so you can imagine how that went over in Judaism. And so he begins to even ratchet it up a little further, and he, begin, he, he begins to put um, pagan uh, idols in the temple. He puts, a, he puts a big statue of Zeus in the, in the temple, which was sacrilege for the Jew, and he begins to uh, desecrate the temple. Matter of fact, he sacrifices a pig on the altar, which was an unclean animal. Many believe this is a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9 and 11 called the abomination that leads to desolation. The abomination, the abomination of taking an unclean animal and sacrificing it on the altar and also having pagan, pagan gods in the temple. So 
uh, at this point is getting bad. Uh, they're going throughout the community. He sends delegates out to the community over the next couple of years into these smaller towns around Jerusalem and around Israel and tells them they need to sacrifice pig and then they need to eat pork, which was unclean. And they come into the home of Mattathias, who is a high priest in a, in a village just about 15, 20 miles, 25 miles away from Jerusalem. And Mattathias says, not on my watch. And Mattathias, when when the young man comes up to sacrifice the pig on the altar, he takes a spear and he kills him. And then he kills the delegates that have come um, from uh, Antiochus' group or his army. And he kills him. And then he flees into the woods with his five sons. So he has five sons. And this is where the Maccabean revolt starts. Okay? This is where it starts. So he flees and they begin to operate in guerrilla war tactics uh, with the... um, with the government there and with the Greeks. And uh, it's, it's definitely problematic at this point. Uh, but he continues and, and he's somewhat successful all the way up until 164 uh, BC. And 164 BC, uh, he is able to be so successful that he, he takes back over Jerusalem, he cleanses the temple, he kicks them out, and he establishes Jewish independence. And this is a great time of celebration. And during that time, after he cleansed the temple, there was only so much oil left that had not been defiled. And it was believed that they would set the menorah up, that it should burn every night, that there was always light coming into God's temple, holy temple. And so uh, that light, those, those, that menorah was lit, the temple was recleansed, rededicated, but they only had enough for one night. But the story is, and we don't know if this is true or not, but the story goes that uh, while they didn't have any uh, oil and it took about seven to eight days to get more oil, that it continued to burn. Even though it was only enough for one, it burned for eight days. So they call it uh, the miracle of lights. They call it the festival lights. And they now celebrate and worship this holiday known as Hanukkah every December. We think it's just another Christmas. No, it's celebrating this time during the intertestamental periods when Judas Maccabeus, the hammer, the third son of Mattathias, who led the revolt, cleansed the temple, kicked them out, and established back the Jewish state. And so uh, the miracle of Hanukkah, so to speak, and so that's still observed and worshiped today. Well, we go on for about 100 years, and though there's strife and contention, things are pretty good all the way up until 63 B.C. In 63 B.C., a Roman general comes through named Pompey. And Pompey uh, basically conquers Jerusalem and uh, tears it apart. And they reestablish Roman order. And now the Romans are in control. They are the authority. There's no Jewish independence. They are vassals. You pay taxes. We will control your worship. We'll control your culture. We'll control everything. And so that's what Pompey comes in and, and does. And then in about 40 AD, in 40 AD, uh, Pompey has passed away at this point. He's not the ruler. Um, but who, who are the rulers at this point are, are two other generals, uh, two other kings, so to speak, Mark Antony. We know of Mark Antony and Cleopatra, who's over the Ptolemaic area, over the Ptolemies. And in the Seleucid Empire, you have, does anybody know who's over the Seleucid Empire? I'll be really impressed if you know this. Okay, so you have uh, over the Ptolemies, you have Mark Antony, then you have Octavian, okay? Octavian, the Roman general. So Octavian and, to- and uh, Octavian and the other guy I just said. What, who did I just say? Mark Antony. Well, we should all remember that. Mark Antony and Octavian, okay? So 
eventually they, uh, they appoint this guy uh, to kind of rule over as a vassal, as a puppet, this guy named Herod. And they, they let him take on the title King Herod, Herod the Great. Let him take on that title because he's so loyal to Rome, because he brings them, quite frankly, a lot of money. He taxes his people really heavily because he's part Jew. He knows the people. He knows how they operate. He knows where they have their resources. And so he taxes them, and he goes after them with, with the support of Rome. And so the Jews hate him. They think of him as a traitor, but he makes much money for the Romans. So Octavian loves him. And Octavian eventually uh, beats out Mark Antony and Cleopatra, and he takes over the entire empire. So now Octavian's in charge. Herod, his puppet king over Palestine, who's very loyal to him. And now Octavian changes his name because he becomes, it's no longer any form of a democracy in Rome. He's now the dictator and even takes a pretty much a deity position. And he changes his name to what? Caesar Augustus. So now when we start to read the New Testament, what do we see? We see Caesar Augustus. We see King Herod. We understand the tension that's transpiring there. Now, as the Bible closes out in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, if you go to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, I want to read something to you. So let's look at that. Malachi 4. This is right before the silent period begins. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. And the Bible says, this is the very last words of the Old Testament, 400 years before Christ would come. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of his fathers to the children and the hearts of the children of their father, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let's let's key in on verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord coming. So Jews knew there is a Messiah. There's a day of the Lord. He is coming. He is coming. And he's going to send Elijah before. Now, what we now know is it wasn't literally Elijah. It was a prophet like Elijah in the spirit of Elijah who would speak at Elijah. Remember, there's been no prophet speak for 400 years. But there is one coming. There's one more prophet. It's the last prophet. And Jesus says that he's the greatest prophet. Now, who is this prophet going to be? John the Baptist. Let's look at Mark chapter 1. Mark being the first gospel that was written. So we just saw 400 years before what transpired in Malachi chapter 4, verse uh, 5 and 6. Now let's go to Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. This is what John is to do. This is what the spirit of Elijah, the prophet of Elijah, he is to prepare the way, the Bible says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. No one has been speaking on behalf of God for 400 years. There's been no prophet. But now, just like Elijah, who was in the wilderness, who had a voice that was crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So now here's John, who's been born ahead of Jesus, somewhere around 5 or 6 B.C., and he's come on the scene, and he started his ministry, and he's been preaching, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Repent. He's preaching a message of repentance. They've not heard a prophet do this for 400 years. It's been silent. But now the voice of the one, the voice of Elijah, the Elijah voice of their generation, of their era is crying out, repent 
Make your path straight. Prepare for the coming of the Lord. The Messiah is coming. And that's exactly what he preaches. And he preaches a, 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 a message of repentance, of confession and repentance. Now, what's interesting is if you were a Jewish proselyte or a convert, if you were not a Jew and you decided to come into Judaism, there were at least two things that required of you to become a Jew. The first one was you had to confess that Yahweh was God and confess his law and his tenets, okay? That was the first thing. There had to be a confession. Now, if you were a male, you also had to be circumcised. Now, if you were a child or a woman, obviously you didn't have to be. But if you were coming to convert, you had to confess. And then the second thing you had to do was what? Be baptized into that covenant. You were baptized into that Old Testament covenant. So you confessed, you confessed the tenement, you made a proclamation, a profession of belief, a profession of faith, so to speak, and then you were baptized into that covenant. Now there's a new covenant. There's a new voice coming. The Messiah is coming, and he's going to implement a new covenant. And so what does he do? He asks, first of all, John begins to baptize for the repentance, and then he tells, Jesus says, I need you to baptize me. Before he starts his public ministry, what does he do? He's baptized. Why? Because there's a new covenant the covenant of grace established by Jesus Christ. There's a new order. That was always the picture. And so that's why the Jews are so infuriated. What are you doing baptizing? Those Jews have already been baptized. What are you doing? It's a new covenant coming on. That was scandalous. This is the picture in which we find ourselves when we begin to read the Gospels. There are at least four groups that are in play at this time. The first group, uh, the group called the Essenes, when all this transpired, when all this started happening with the Romans and with the Greeks, they basically said during the silent period, we're out of here. So they went and they dwelt in the desert and in the caves. They said, we're completely abandoned culture. We're getting out of this culture. And they were called the Essenes. The second group were the Zealots. You know what? We will just militarize it. We'll fight. We'll kill them. We'll pick them off. We're going to wage war. Even if we lose, no matter what it costs, it will be through death. It'll be through war. That's the only way things are going to change. There was a third group that said, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. And they were the Hellenized Jews. And their leadership, those in authority, that's also what the, the Sadducees were. They were Hellenized. They still called themselves Jews. They still said they professed Yahweh, but they adopted and they were very sympathetic uh, to the Hellenization of the Jews. And then the fourth group was the Sadducees. They were the fundamentalists. And thank God for the Sadducees, by the way, during the, the, um, uh, the 400 years of silence, because they are the one who preserved the law. Remember how it was illegal to own a copy? They were the one who preserved the law, who memorized it, who wrote it down, and who enacted it. But then now they've become legalistic, and they're blind to this message that John is preaching. But you know what's transpiring right here now? This. Back to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4, 14. What does the Bible say? It says this. But in the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. This is the fullness of time. The people have said, God, where are you? What's going on? And he's not been absent. He's been working. He's been preparing for this day, for the coming of the Lord. He sent his prophet John the Baptist, as he said he would from Elisha chapter 4, which they would have taught, they would have memorized, and now he's coming. He's preaching, preaching this message. It's the fullness of time. It's time now. 
You couldn't see it. You didn't understand it. You thought I was silent, but I've been working on your behalf. I've been working on my behalf the whole time. And now is the fullness of time. Maybe you're here this morning and life has been difficult. Maybe this is a difficult season for you. You've been praying, you've been asking, but it seemed like God has been silent. Maybe you don't understand what God's doing. Nothing makes sense right now. Maybe it's disease, loss of job, uh, loss of home, loss of relationship, and none of it makes sense. But can you tell this? Can I tell you this? If you're a believer in Christ Jesus, this is what I believe, that he redeems all things. That all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And what does he mean by good? He means that he can redeem it from the good of his glory, the good of his kingdom. Just like he redeemed that period of silent years. Just as he redeems our lives even from our sin, even from our difficulties. There's a man named William Lane Craig, and I consider him to be the greatest living apologist today, one of the greatest Christian apologists that has ever lived. I had a chance to meet him a couple of times, and he's a brilliant man. Uh, Matter of fact, if you know who Richard Dawkins is, who writes all the books on uh, God is dead, God is not great, Um, he's written all these New York best time sellers, and he debates people, but guess who he will not debate? He will not debate... William Lane Craig. He refuses to. He won't do it. You know why? Because William Lane Craig will will whip his tail. That's why. He won't do it. And William Lane Craig, though, the story for him is when he was born, he was born with a muscular disease that um, his extremities have never developed. So, as a matter of fact, atrophy continues to set on very slowly after time uh, on his fingers and his toes, his hands, his feet. And so he was born that way, and it's just progressively gotten a little worse as he's grown. And he said, you know, I could, uh, I could never walk right. And if you see him now, he, he walks with a limp. When I shook his hand, his hand, you can tell something's not quite right there because the atrophy is there, and so it's difficult. And he said, as a child, it was brutal. He goes, I went through constant bullying. He goes, sports were out of the question because I couldn't use my hands. I couldn't, use, I couldn't run. Uh, I couldn't use my hands. He said, so it very severely limited what I could do. He said, I, <clears throat> I couldn't really do art. I couldn't do hardly anything. But when I got to high school, there was one thing that I found that I could do, and that was debate. He said, I was a good student, so I, st- I began to pour into my studies, and I began to debate. And he said, now I went through that process, and I got pretty good at it. He said, and then when I got to college, I continued because there was nothing else I could do, not knowing what would I do for a living. Um, But I continued in debate, and I continued to study and continued to do uh, as well as I could. He said, and it wasn't until later on, uh, and I had become a believer, and I I recognized the Bible was true, that God began to use my skills, and I began to debate people, and I began to take up apologetics. And now he's a world-renowned apologist all over the world. People, he writes his books. He has a website, Reasonable Faith. I encourage you to go to that. And he debates people, and he'll take on anybody that wants to come. And so that's what he does. And now he is, not probably in my estimation, he is the greatest apologist uh, of our century. Uh, Outside of C.S. Lewis, he's the greatest one that I would say has ever existed in modern uh, Christianity. And so how did he get there? Well, he would tell you the story. When I was a child, he goes, I hated my life. It was hard. It was brutal. I was bullied constantly. He said, but what it forced me to do was to study, to read, and to learn how to talk, to learn how to debate. So I took 
all that pain and because I couldn't do anything else and I just learned how to talk and how to debate. And I poured all my energies there, never understanding that God would redeem all of that pain. He goes, I wouldn't change a thing now. So if you had asked me the first 22 years of my life, I, was, I would have told you how awful and evil that disease was. And he said, and I still would not tell you it was any fun, but I'm so got, glad I went through that process. He said, never would have I studied to the degree, never would I put the concentrate and the effort into the skill that I have now had God not so severely limited me. And he has redeemed all of that pain for his glory now. That's the kind of God we serve, the God who can redeem all things in the fullness of time. Do you know him? Have you trusted him as your Lord and Savior? I want to invite you to do so this morning. Would you pray with me? Maybe you're here this morning and you've never come to that place where you recognize, I'm a sinner and I cannot save myself. I cannot be good enough. But God, I know that you're perfect and holy and I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe that Jesus paid the price of my sin and I want to put my trust and faith in you, God. So this morning, I want to commit my life to you. Maybe you're a believer in Christ Jesus. Maybe things have just gotten so hard that you've just checked out. I want to encourage you to to, to understand these three things. Number one, just because you don't see God doesn't mean that he's not at work. Number two, recognize that God is always working in and through events. They're not purpose. They're not of lack of purpose, but God uses all things. And number three, prepare your heart through prayer and study as you seek him and believe that in the abundance of time, in the fullness of time, that Christ will work and work through your pain, work through your suffering and redeem it for his glory. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And Lord, as we give you thanks for the fullness of time when you brought Jesus into this world so that we might have salvation and forgiveness. And one day again, the pleroma in the fullness of time, you will come again. These events in history are not taking you by surprise. You understand. And at the appointed time, you will come for your children, for your followers. Lord, for anyone who is not ready for you to return again, Lord, I pray that today would be their pleroma. Today would be the fullness of time where they would say yes to you and no to their sin. To say, yes, Jesus, I accept you. Be my God, be my Savior. For the believer who has gotten off track or who has gotten stale or who has fallen away, Lord, today would be the day that you call them to repentance, that you produce the fullness of time, the pleroma, as they come back into fellowship with you and they seek you and trust, even in difficult circumstances, even when they don't understand why, that you are at work, even when we can't see it. Lord, I thank you so much for your great grace. And we commit this time to you In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.